We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of humanity. It's something reasonable that everybody should expect, especially here in America, where we've had such a long tradition of equality and respecting the dignity of everybody, no matter where they came from. We are a mosaic, people made up of uh, all different cultures, and we become Americans. The question is, are white Christian citizens more American than everyone else? Has institutional racism expanded beyond blacks and Latinos, so that now South Asian, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants and Arabs are the new those people. How insecure is the dominant white culture so that these Americans are somehow not allowed to sing America? Is this new racism and xenophobia, often called Islamophobia, something new? How is it affecting these Americans and What might be effective at fighting this irrational fear, which is clearly based on ignorance? I'm very pleased to have with us as guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Deepa Iyer. Deepa, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And uh, she is a senior fellow at the Center for Social Inclusion, was an executive director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, and an activist in residence at the University of Maryland. Her new book is called We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. We Too Sing America is the name of the book. What led to your decision to write this book? As you mentioned, I have been working in South Asian American communities for about 15 years now while I was at SALT, South Asian Americans Leading Together, which is a national nonprofit in the U.S. that really was shaped by the post-9-11 moment. And in my time there, I worked on a number of issues related to, as you mentioned in your intro, around systemic racism, institutional racism that affected South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh communities. And I wanted to really tell the story of our communities because oftentimes the narratives and experiences that we hear about post-9-11 America don't include the impact of government policy or public narratives about these communities. And so what really came out for me was this need to tell these stories in a way that all Americans could hear them. Uh, Interesting, because we really are 
all immigrants here, unless you are a native-born indigenous American. We're, we're a nation of immigrants. When you were 12 years old, your family moved from India to Louisville, Kentucky. Interesting, right. interesting place to choose. I can't imagine what it was like for you to grow up in that culture, the South. Uh, tell us how you became aware of your place as a person from South Asia outside of the black and white uh, racial uh, uh, system. That's right. So we moved to Louisville in the mid-'80s, and at that time I was in sixth grade, and so you can imagine both the culture shock, of course, of moving from one country to another, but also, as you mentioned, moving to the South. Uh, there were very few Indian immigrant families at the time. It's different now, of course, but at the time there were not so many. And I think that both you know, my classmates, for example, as well as my own family, were confused about our racial identity. And in the South at the time, the ways that you talked to or thought about people were along the black or white racial binary. And so someone who was Asian or from India didn't seem to fit either one. And so I struggled, as many immigrants do, to figure out what my racial identity is and how to center it. And it was some of the experiences that I did have in Kentucky and my family had, as well as being more politicized, becoming conscious about who I am in college, that really led me to uh, be a little bit more comfortable with my identity as an immigrant, as a woman of color in the United States, and being connected to other communities of color and other immigrants as well. Interesting. I'm reminded during the uh, anti-Chinese uh, uh, pogroms, really, in uh, the late 19th century and, and some of the uh, race riots they were called in the early part of the 20th century uh, in, in the Harlem area in New York City uh, when there was uh, race riots. I remember uh, there were, I, I heard about uh, uh, some Chinese uh, businesses painting in, in not such great English, on the outside of their stores, me colored too. You know, mm. to, because it was black and white, and this is, you know, are, are you colored, was the old expression was, are you white? But as you're saying, it was, it was something different and something visually different. But if, I wonder if you could give us some examples of how the uh, nearly decade and a half since 9-11 has fundamentally altered South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrant communities in the United States? Sure. So 9-11 is definitely a watershed moment when we think about South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh communities, but it's important to remember that these communities have been in America for right. hundreds of years before that yes. and have faced systemic racism, anti-immigration laws, exclusion in different ways as well. But there was something specific about the 9-11 moment and what happened afterwards in that we did see both in, the term, both in terms of government policy as well as media narratives and the ways that people think about these communities that they became cast as the other, a new set of others in America. And the way in which that's played out is in a couple, I'll just give you a couple of stories that are in the book. Um, one particular story that I talk about is about a community in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Um, some of your listeners might remember that in 2012, there was a rampage at a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, uh, yes. where a white supremacist hmm. right, barged in and killed six people. And that sort of hate violence, we saw a disproportionate level of it 
in the years after 9-11. And it's important to remember that, you know, I just spoke of a story in 2012 that, well, you know, 10, 12, 14 years after 9-11, people in these communities continue to feel that they are unsafe, unwelcomed, even in a place of worship, which is supposed to be a sanctuary for all of us. And so hate violence is something that we saw in the post-9-11 environment. A second is national security policy. So these are government policies that were implemented by the United States government in the name of national security. But what they ended up doing is really having an impact on these communities, these immigrants. Many people were interrogated. They were detained, deported as a result of these policies that brought together our immigration laws and our national security laws, conflated them, and the impact has been that these communities feel that they are threatened or under threat, under scrutiny by our own government. And then the third way that I trace in the book in the post-9-11 environment that we saw is Islamophobia, which you mentioned earlier, where we have seen this um, anti-Muslim sentiment brewing in this country where people who are Muslim or who are perceived to be Muslim are thought of as national security threats worthy of suspicion. And so you have everything from flying while brown, where people are profiled at the airport, to even the the recent story that kind of made headlines where you had a Muslim student in Texas bringing in a homemade clock that was criminalized um, because he was suspected of um, actually building a bomb. So these are the types of ways in which we've seen the post-9-11 environment manifest itself in the lives of Muslim, South Asians, Arabs, and Sikhs. You know, people think about, uh, you know, we want to be secure from terrorist attacks, but the fear that has been just ginned up, it's been such a, frankly, profitable industry selling us fear, it really does a lot of harm to people. And and this case of uh, uh, Ahmed Mohammed, 12-year-old boy in Irving, Texas, the community was somehow terrorized, not by him, but by the school authorities. Uh, he just, he made a clock. And let's face it, had a, had a uh, you know, a blonde hair, blue-eyed 12-year-old boy made this clock, nobody would have paid any attention. Why did this, this particular very recent incident happen? And what did the school do? to actually exacerbate that situation. Exactly. So the, the biases and stereotypes that we have about Muslims in particular have really taken root in terms of our institutions. And that's one of the things that I try to highlight in the book, that we need to address the implicit biases that all of us have against one another, towards one another, But more importantly, to create change, we need to really look at the institutions and the systems. So in that particular case, as you mentioned, the school, uh, school administrators decided that there was something problematic, something suspicious about this clock based on um, this young man's faith, based on his name, based on his race. He's a black Muslim. I think that's important to point out. And immediately that set a course of events in motion where he was handcuffed, he was interrogated, Um, and he was taken to a juvenile center. So this sort of school-to-prison pipeline that we talk about that affect black and Latino kids in particular, um, it is also having an impact on Muslim, South Asian, Arab, and Sikh immigrants as well uh, in the same way. And so so addressing the systems and the institutions will be critical if people feel like they can be safe, if kids feel like they can actually engage in science experiments and bring them to school 
without all of a sudden being questioned about what they're doing. Wow. Hmm. It's, it's, you know, for those of us whose skin is white, I look white, I'm Jewish, but, you know, it, it, it's sort of, you know, it's important to see what it feels like. This book uh, that we're talking about, We Too Sing America, our guest today is Deepa Iyer, and uh, it is uh, currently available, and it's a fascinating uh, uh, read. Now, there are a lot of, let's face it, low-information white Americans who no doubt often react to South Asian, Muslim, and Sikh citizens with fear. But really, how justified is this fear? In other words, how do most people in these groups, in the South Asian Muslim Sikh citizens, how do they see the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11? Yeah, I think that everyone has roundly condemned any sort of terrorist attack on our country, whether it was uh, with 9-11 or anything after that. And I think that part of what you may be getting at is that oftentimes our communities are asked to apologize or asked mm. to um, explain why these sorts of terrorist attacks occur. And clearly that's not something that we should have to do, right? Nobody asks um, the white community to apologize for, for what Dylan Roof did, um, who was the, the young man who committed the rampage in the black church in Charleston. Um, however, there's sort of a double standard when it comes to our communities where we're being asked to explain and condemn or apologize time and again for acts that nobody wants to be associated with or affiliated with. And I think that it's important that we, that, that as you said, white allies um, really are able to, conscious white allies are able to engage in interventions and disruptions, speaking up when um, there are these sorts of stereotypes uh, against our communities, um, even moving beyond sort of diversity speak that if we're talking about a country where we want to live in community with each other, mm. a multiracial nation, which is where we're headed, yes. that we need to go beyond diversity and multiculturalism as the, the tagline and actually talk about equity and justice. And, and so that's also something that a lot of the people in the book um, that I profile bring up time and again from these communities. Yeah, it's uh, important uh, to read about this. How... Well, let, let me ask you this. Why not just shed the traditional garb and customs and just blend in aggressively into the dominant culture? Probably some people would, uh, would hope that would be done. What's the reaction to that? I think that in America we have the traditions and values of welcoming people's diversity, welcoming people's cultures, their cuisine, um, welcoming them to practice their faith freely, uh, these are some ideals that America is known for. And so I think that what people from our communities do is that they do actually take a, a lot of interest. They're invested in their communities. And so the interfaith work that happens, for example, um, the ways in which people are getting engaged civically, running for political office to represent their communities, there are many ways in which um, immigrants generally, but certainly the ones that I talk about in my book, are actually very engaged in the civic and political and community life of our nation and believe that they don't need to give up who they are, where they come from, the languages that they speak, the traditions that they hold in order to do that. And that's, that's what it means to be American for many of the people that I write about in the book, that they can hold on to who they are and the customs and histories and traditions that they bring with them, but at the same time shape an America 
um, that is fuller, more vibrant because of who they are. And that's exactly what has happened with every other culture in America. Every other culture, you, you know, people from England, Lithuania, Italy, we all bring our cultures with us and and proudly hold on to a lot of the uh, tradition and identity. That doesn't make us any less American at all. In fact, I think one could argue effectively that uh, it really strengthens America. It, it, you know, makes us a bigger country in many, many different ways. And uh, it's it's just amazing how ignorance and fear of the other just it's it's got to change what can what can make it change i mean i i often find that you know those people who are so clearly and most obviously racist they don't know people from different races and different cultures but when they get to know individuals they figure sometimes they figure well this person's different this person's unique he's he's not like the others out there but it's a lack of of understanding and i i wonder how much you know melting into the culture and being part of the culture uh these these communities are i can't help but think that you know it's just i i know in big cities in boston of course they're just you know it's just uh like every other community mm-hmm. no absolutely and and, you know, I wanted to address a point that you just made when you talked about how all immigrant communities have been accepted, right, um, and that they still bring their culture and traditions. But I think the one difference is around race and yeah. national origin. So for European immigrants, that process has looked very different from uh, immigrants who come from the global south. And right. part of that is because we are talking about people with a different skin color. We're talking about people who don't speak English or have other primary languages that they bring with them, um, or people who are not Judeo-Christian, for example. So I think some of those reasons are why we're seeing this sort of xenophobia um, and Islamophobia targeting these communities where we don't see that with, say, white immigrants uh, historically or even today. Um, But to your point about um, whether or not you know, melding together more would make a difference. Sure, and I think it goes both ways, right? And, I, I, you know, I talk a little bit about um, two places of worship in the book. One is a, the Sikh temple in Oak Creek, another is a mosque in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And both of those communities have taken um, a lot of actions and steps to open the walls of their places of worship to the community around them, whether it's open houses, whether it's Eid dinners, you know, to be able to say, look, we are part of this community and we want everyone who lives in the area to come into our place of worship, um, to get to know who we are. And I think it goes both ways. It is a, it's something that immigrant communities can do, but it's also something that welcoming communities or receiving communities can do as well. Mm. So I think that that has to happen both ways in order to have this understanding of each other. Um, and that is really a critical first step, um, that when we understand that we have common immigrant histories or common experiences as immigrants um, and Americans in this country, that really does a lot to overcome the stereotypes and the biases that we are accustomed to, or even the media narratives that we hear, or even the political rhetoric. Um, You know, even right now, we have seen um, a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric, especially uh, with the Republican debates in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of overcoming all of that that we get, that, that we hear on the airwaves or um, that we are subjected to 
is our own step in terms of getting to know our neighbors, getting to know the places of worship around us, um, so that we can overcome some of these negative messages that we hear. And I'm sure it's got to be frustrating that the mainstream media hasn't gotten the word out about you know, how the average Muslim or Sikh American, South Asian, has, has spoken out against you know, the extremist terrorist attacks. People, you know, regular white people, average white people say, well, they haven't heard that, so they don't know. I can't help but think that there's been a lot of speaking out, but the mainstream media has just failed to cover it. I can't remember. What does that feel like? That's right. It is very frustrating. You know, I can't tell you how many press releases and statements go out um, from organizations in our communities when events happen that threaten all Americans. And it is a double standard, as I mentioned, that um, our communities are placed in this position where we have to apologize. Um, But the mainstream media does not cover that, but it doesn't really cover our stories in depth. And one of the things that I think would be helpful is to have mainstream media not just cover, for example, um, Lunar New Year or Diwali or Eid, you know, the cultural festivals um, that happen in our communities, which are very important to lift up because... People get to know our, our communities that way. But it's also important to talk about the impact of um, how people are living their lives on a daily basis as a result of feeling targeted or unsafe. Yeah. And those are the stories that we need to hear as well. And part of the reason I wrote the book yes. is to bring, bring that up and bring that out. Um, and a lot of the folks that I profile in the book are actually young people. Um, they're under the age of 30. They are activists in their communities. They are taking leadership in movements all around the country, and they are doing so despite being threatened and feeling unsafe. And so I think their stories really give us uh, the hope that we have for the future of what this country can be. And I have to add my voice, too. I I must say I have a lot of hope in the uh, so-called millennials, the people under 30. They seem to get it in a lot of ways that uh, many of my generation just don't get. They have no use for uh, discrimination and fear of the other. How has the so-called Patriot Act, and that name bothers me because it's tremendously unpatriotic as far as I'm concerned, but how does the so-called Patriot Act, how has it played out in these Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh communities? What what has been the effect of the Patriot Act on, on these communities in specific? Well, that piece of legislation, which has been renewed and reauthorized yes. by Congress time and again, really set in place this infrastructure that we have within our government for law enforcement to be able to monitor, surveil communities, and do so without a lot of checks and balances. Yeah. And one of the ways that that's played itself out is the surveillance state that we see right now. Um, So local law enforcement, federal law enforcement has the ability to monitor the activities of people in these communities, and in particular, uh, that has been happening in New York City, where the New York Police Department has actually put in informants, sent informants into mosques, or even surveilled the activities of a Muslim Students Association on a college campus, um, and gone into uh, hookah bars and restaurants, and even... um, at cricket games or soccer games that people come together on a Sunday to play and and get together. And that sort of surveillance has had a tremendous impact on our communities. It creates this 
fear, this feeling of, oh, I can't even walk into my mosque without knowing whether or not um, there's someone spying on our congregation. And I don't know whether or not the activities or the discussions I'm having on a college campus um, are going to be investigated by law enforcement. Hmm. And so the impact that that has, the psychological impact, first of all, in terms of people feeling that they can't truly be themselves, that they can't practice their faith, um, that has had a tremendous impact on our communities. Uh, even young people, you know, in the book who talk about, well, can I, can I wear my turban or my hijab? That's a question that they ask themselves. Right. Um, can I, can I actually go to my mosque? Can I go to my gurdwara without feeling like I might be attacked? Certainly, these are not the situations we want to create for communities <laughs> in this country, and it's absolutely un-American. Um, but unfortunately, this this casting of the other continues even 14 years after 9-11 when it comes to these communities. And I can't help but, you know, look through American history. The idea behind the Ku Klux Klan was to terrorize black people, especially in the South, but not exclusively in the South, and to let them know they're being watched and, you know, to, to have them live in a feeling of absolute terror and that it's a terror state. And you talk about terrorism. Here we have something like uh, the so-called Patriot Act, which, as you say, has been renewed again and again and again, it's it's terrorizing good Americans, which makes me rather angry. It's just, you I mean, you talk about terrorism. There's there's the terror. And speaking of terror, what are, you know, young kids, I, I know that junior high school and high school is tough for kids no matter. It's really a hard time for them. How much bullying is there in our public schools against kids of Asian, Muslim, Arab, or Sikh backgrounds? Bullying is definitely a a problem that we are seeing in schools all around the country. And the government has taken note of that. The federal government, the U.S. Department of Justice, for example, has put out uh, several um, advisories to principals around the country, school districts around the country, to be aware of the fact that students from these communities might be um, prone to being bullied. And so we know, for example, that sick children um, have experienced higher rates of bullying in places like New York City or California, and there are studies that indicate that this is the same for Muslim communities as well, Muslim students as well. So bullying in schools is definitely an issue. Um, Employment discrimination is something else that we've seen, and, of course, profiling. So these, these types of ways in which people actually are reacting with uh, suspicion towards people from these communities is something that we see in many contexts, from education to the workplace, and, of course, um, as we talked about earlier, in terms of hate violence as well. Mm. If you just uh, tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Deepa Iyer. The new book is We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. Government authorities... This was interesting. Government authorities arrested and detained 738 non-citizens between September 11th, 01, and August of 02. Those taken became known as the disappeared, many of whom were South Asian, Muslim, and Arab immigrant men. Tell us a bit about this rather unknown history, please. That's right. I think that we actually don't know fully still the impact of some of the government policies and actions that took place in the months and years after 9-11. That's one particular one that you talked about, which um, basically 
uh, ended up being that these these people, known as the disappeared, because they just literally disappeared from their homes or their places of employment, um, were interrogated, detained, and ostensibly deported. And that sort of uh, use of immigration law and immigration, the immigration system and the immigration courts is something that we saw time and again, because the people that were being targeted by the government and who were being pulled into these interrogations were mainly non-citizens. And so what you talked about is one particular policy, another one that most people don't know about. I usually ask people when I'm speaking about these issues to raise their hands if they've heard of this other policy called NSEERS um, or special registration, but many people don't know about it, um, was basically a policy where the government asked individuals, men, 16 years and older, to report to their local immigration offices if they came from 25-plus countries around the world. These countries all ended up being from South Asia or the Middle East. And when these men reported to their immigration authorities, they were asked really odd questions, such as, where do you pray? And um, the questions had nothing to do with their immigration status. And unfortunately, thousands of these men were deported. And what, en what ended up happening as a result of that is that we had broken families, um, we had broken homes, businesses had to shut down, and it has had a tremendous impact on our communities um, of, of kind of being othered by the government right. as well at right. the same time as we were facing hate violence, bullying, discrimination, and the like. And so this, this sets up sort of a, a loop where the government policies of profiling people based on national security justifications ended up reinforcing the feeling among the public that there was something wrong with these communities and that actions could be taken against them. And so what I think we need to do, what I argue that we need to do, is really interrupt this loop. Yeah. And we need to... Um, we need to make sure that our lawmakers are accountable, held accountable, so that these sorts of policies don't get implemented time and again, and that they're also saying that we won't tolerate this. We need political rhetoric to be a lot stronger than it is in terms of setting the tone for our nation that this sort of othering, this sort of marginalization will mm. not be tolerated in America. And, and what's the status of this NSEERS, National Security Entry-Exit Registration System, Right, so that program has been disbanded in the sense that um, people from those 25-plus countries are no longer the targets, but it still exists in some capacity um, where if you're an immigrant, you need to check in as you enter and exit the country, and the government is able to um, keep tabs on you. Um, but in terms of the specific focus on just those countries, that has ended. But the fact that this could happen in... Our, our country over the past decade is something that's very uh, terrifying, to be sure. quite honest, because it could happen again. And part of what um, I think that we need to be vigilant about is that if there are other terrorist attacks, for example, that we need to be in a place where we're not saying that safety is more important than civil rights. And mm -hmm. how can we have both? How can we ensure our national security, but at the same time respect the rights and liberties of all people here? It was one of our founders, I'm not sure who, said, uh, maybe it was Thomas Jefferson, you know, people want security and freedom, uh, mm -hmm. but if they get too much security, their freedom will be gone, and uh, boy, we're, we're seeing uh, quite a bit of that, and, and to, uh, you know, specifically target certain areas. I mean, it's like, 
you know, for white people, does the uh, that uh, church from uh, what is it, uh, West uh, Westboro Community Church, that is incredibly racist and anti-gay, and as you mentioned, uh, that young person who uh, massacred the people in their church in in Charleston, South Carolina, does that represent all whites? I don't think so. I mean, there were 19 people aboard the 9/11 flights out of hundreds of millions of of you know muslims and it's just it's amazing how uh frankly the ignorance and the fear can just uh paint a whole giant community because of tiny tiny stuff and people had a lot of hopes when president obama was elected he he used hope as a marketing tool let's face it and you know a lot of people had hoped well electing the first uh, black president would uh, you know really mean something about racism well he hasn't really stood up very much against racism at all he's been pretty quiet how has the obama administration possibly actually contributed to this suspicion filled environment that uh, you write about mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know it goes to show that we can't rest everything in our elected leaders, right? But that's not that's not where the revolution is going to happen. Um, but certainly under the Obama administration, there have been some positive changes. For example, the, disband, the, the disbanding of that NCERS policy that we just talked about yeah. and, um, and, and other policies related to, say, airport profiling and how to limit that. Um, but at the same time, we have seen other policies continue, specifically around profiling by law enforcement, um, the surveillance that I talked about earlier uh, by federal and local law enforcement agencies um, is something that's still in place. Um, The Obama administration put out some guidance at the end of last year on how law enforcement agencies should act. Um, They prohibited profiling that you can't just pull over people or subject them to law enforcement activities just because of their race or their national origin, their sexual orientation, their gender or their faith, and that, that's important. However, this guidance also created some loopholes and uh, said that if there's a national security reason, that it would be all right to continue to use profiling techniques. So in, in one way, we have this kind of prohibition against law enforcement profiling, but at the same time, we have an exemption based on national security. And so it doesn't really make a huge impact or a huge change on the lives of the communities that I write about. And there is racial profiling. It largely seems to be legal, I guess. What we there must be a lot to learn from the lessons of the Japanese American redress movement uh, from you know the uh, internship internship uh, camps concentration camps, use some of the lessons from there to address post-9-11 civil rights right. violations. What, what can we learn from that? Well, we should have learned a lot more than we did, and that's, uh, that, that's a travesty, to be quite honest. As you mentioned, during World War II, over 110,000 Japanese Americans were interned, uh, were, were put into camps in the country because they were seen as threats, again, um, to our nation's uh, safety. And unfortunately, in the post-9-11 moment, um, it seems when you look at government policies that we didn't learn so much from how we treated Japanese Americans because we continue to implement policies that actually targeted now Muslim, South Asian, and Arab communities. Um, And I think that the Japanese American community in particular has been very supportive of our communities because they understand what the impact is of being treated in this way. What we should have learned is that 
we need to be more vigilant about making sure that we're not depriving people of their civil rights and civil liberties while trying to maintain safety. That's still something that America, I think, is trying to figure out. And in May of 2013, you and other leaders of the Asian American organizations met with President Barack Obama at the White House. What was on your agenda? What what came of that meeting? How meaningful and helpful did it turn out to be? That meeting was actually the first time that President Obama sat down in his administration or in his term with Asian American national leaders. So it was a very important meeting for us and for our communities and the groups that we represented. And we had several um, asks for the administration. Uh, two in particular uh, were that we wanted the administration to more deliberately focus on addressing the hate violence that was happening in our communities, in Muslim Arab South Asian communities in particular. So we asked for uh, an interagency task force that would actually focus in on why this hate violence was happening and try to, um, to eliminate it. And we talked a little bit about how in the past, when um, there were arsons of black churches in the South, mm. that there was a very um, clear response from the government that uh, under the Clinton administration that actually helped to cut down on the numbers of arsons that were happening. So we asked for an interagency task force similar to that. And the president actually, during the meeting, said yes to that request. And that task force has been put in place. Okay. Um, and the second ask that we, uh, that we brought up was around immigration. So at, the, at that time, in 2013, there was a movement for immigration reform, and we asked the president to take executive action uh, to ensure that undocumented people in particular in our, in our country um, could become legalized. And so those were two of our key asks that pertain to the themes in the book. And we do have hate crime laws. What, what, how effective have they been? What are the, some of the limitations of hate crime laws? And I wonder if victims of hate crimes sometimes feel a little bit uh, nervous and uncomfortable about re- reporting hate crimes yeah. to the authorities. Talk about the limitations of those laws, please. Yeah, there's massive underreporting when it comes to hate crimes in this country, and that is the case for many communities. Um, it's the case for um, queer communities, it's the case for Muslim communities, and many others, because there is a fear of going to law enforcement. So for people who are Muslim, Arab, or South Asian, for example, um, you're always worried that even if you report a crime to law enforcement, that what could happen is that you will be investigated for, say, an immigration violation or a national security violation. And so there is a fear of law enforcement generally that's been created in the post 11 environment that oftentimes hampers the ability or inclination of victims of hate crimes to report. Um, in terms of the laws, the law that we have in place right now, the Matthew uh, Shepard Act, right. is, actually, um, is, is actually a significant improvement to the law that we had in place right after 9-11. And so what this law does is that it provides the ability for local and federal law enforcement to work together to investigate hate crimes. Um, So people have been able to, the government has been able to use this law to bring charges against individuals who have been suspected of of engaging in hate crimes. But yes, there are still limitations because um, those sorts of charges are ones that you usually see in the sentencing phase. So they can lead to extra time in prison, for example, for someone who's a hate crime perpetrator. Um, but oftentimes, you know, 
the law is not enough, you know, even if you're punishing somebody for engaging in an act of violence. Um, it's still not enough for people who feel that they are um, potential victims. Mm-hmm. And so we need, on top of laws, we also need cultural changes. We need a mindset shift uh, so that together all three can lead to a different environment and climate for people in this country. And you do cite some uh, successes through legislation uh, and making a difference. There's been progress made, for example, uh, in New York when uh, they passed the Community Safety Act in 2013. Tell us a little bit about that victory and what that meant. Right. So that is an example of a multiracial, multi-faith coalition that came together in New York City to address law enforcement profiling by the NYPD. And what was really unique about that effort is that there were people from black and Latino communities, um, there were Jewish groups, uh, other interfaith groups, and there were Muslim, Arab, and South Asians involved. So it's an example of what I think we can see in this country moving forward. It's a kind of a best practice that we can learn from, that when organizations and constituencies representing multiple races and faiths come together to say, no, we actually don't want law enforcement to profile us on the basis of our race or faith or gender or religion or sexual orientation, that we can actually get some legislative wins. And it's, it's important that we see that there's common cause across the board, that it isn't just a Muslim issue, it isn't just a, an LGBTQ issue, that actually the, this particular issue of profiling affects all of us. And so I wanted to lift that up and profile that as a practice and as an example of what other communities can do around the country as well. And another aspect of of effectively dealing with this uh, xenophobia, racism, treating uh, people as the other, um, is education. And and you teach Asian American studies, Deepa, uh, and you note in your book that as with the majority of the teaching history, your students have an incomplete and sanitized understanding of 9-11 and post-9-11 America. I hate that stuff. I mean, history is written by the victors, uh, unfortunately, and, uh, and this sanitation and incompletion of history. I mean, I, one of my heroes really is Howard Zinn, who, who really teaches American history, and thankfully, young people love his books. Uh, Perhaps you can talk about what you mean by the a a sanitized understanding of 9-11, post-9-11 America that's that's being taught. Sure. You know, I I remember a number of my students saying in in our segments on post-9-11 America that in their history books, in their classes in high school and middle school, that what they really learned about was obviously the terrorist attacks, which we need to talk about and teach, um, and then the war on terror. Uh, and they actually didn't get any information about the impact of laws like the Patriot Act on communities. They didn't learn anything about how Muslim and Arabs and South Asians were othered in the post-9-11 environment. And so as a result of that, their analysis, their ability to critically analyze policies is incomplete because they only have sort of one narrative that they've been taught. And you know, around, across the board, my students have said, I wish that the, what we learn about in class, what we're learning here, um, was taught in our high schools because it would have given us a better understanding not just of some of the decisions and government policies that occurred in post-911 America, but of these communities so that we can understand these communities in a different way. 
And so I think that um, it's really important that stories and experiences and narratives of all communities um, be lifted up so that people have a much better understanding and they're able to critically make decisions on their own and to say, well, you know what, I don't think that this law enforcement policy on profiling people is right. And I want to be engaged in reacting to that in a different way because I understand what the context is. And so it's not, I think it's about education and understanding, but taking the next step uh, to be a critically engaged resident and citizen of the United States as well. You must not be a Republican to be in favor of critical thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave that one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you mentioned something, a racial bribe. What racial bribe tempts some people of South Asian descent? Right. So that's a concept that's been around for quite some time um, that, um, that, that we talk about where there is, for example, this invitation that is often offered to uh, Asian American communities in particular to climb the ladder of racial, to climb the, the racial ladder in this country. And that ladder usually posits whites at the top yes. and African Americans at the bottom. And so Asians, for the most part, often get asked, to climb that ladder, to claim a place of what I call and what others say is honorary whiteness. Mm. And Mm. one of the uh, things that I argue in the book is that South Asians in particular need to be very careful about declining that racial bribe, that it is very important that they not just decline it, but they actually work on dismantling the ladder, that that racial ladder itself. Um, Mm. And for South Asians, the reasons that I think that they get offered the racial bribe is that there's a perception that they are, quote, a model minority in this country, mm. that South Asians are doing very well in terms of education status or in terms of their professional status. And so aspiring to whiteness is something that can be appealing to some people in my community. Mm. And the book argues that we need to, to need to understand when we're offered that bribe and to be very careful about refusing it, declining it, and to try to dismantle the ladder altogether. Part of that means that we are in uh, coalition with and solidarity with communities of color, in particular black communities. Wow, uh, there are so many examples of that uh, racial bribe situation, you know, being a credit (laughs) to your race, as it were. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a good Indian Yes. Oh, it's so ugly. Now, we, you know, there has been a lot of that in American history. The people at the top of the income scale, they watch unaffected as people in the lower rungs fight against one another. They're set against right. one another. Are there cases uh, in, in, this, in which these ethnic groups are set against one another? Mm-hmm. And the racial ladder does that. It actually, as yes, you mentioned, yes. sets up these wedges where we feel like we have to fight for crumbs or that yeah, we have yes. to actually uh, in particularly demean or disparage black communities in order to keep our place on the racial ladder. And that is something that we see time and again, uh, for example, in the case of, say, affirmative action, where Asians are often pitted against black communities, right? Mm. And so part of what the book is talking about is how we actually, how, how South Asians in particular, people in my own community, how we can actually dismantle that ladder altogether because as our country changes racially, um, it's really important for communities of color, white allies, uh, people of different faiths who have a shared vision of what we want America to be 
to come together and not be sort of set apart. Um, and so we need to be very vigilant about where we can find common cause. And, you know, the presidential race is in full gear now. And as part of that uh, unique dynamic, the country is having significant and sometimes conversations about race and immigration, partially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement right. in anticipation of the 2016 presidential elections. Where do South Asian Arab Muslim communities uh, fit into these conversations? We hardly figure into those conversations yeah. at all. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. I think that we need to have more talk about race and the impact of systemic racism, whether it's in the lives of working people, whether it's in terms of racial profiling or police brutality. We need more of that. And unfortunately, on both debates, you know, in both debates that we've seen on both sides, yeah. very, very little gets talked about, um, about race or immigration. And I would, I would say that we need more of it, not less. But for South Asian Arab Muslim communities, when we are mentioned, if at all, it's in the context of xenophobia or it's in the context of othering. It's in the yes. context of national security and terrorism. And so what we need to do is to really make sure that people understand that our communities can't just be seen in this national security box, um, that we have the same kinds of aspirations and challenges as all Americans, but that because of our race, because of our faith, because of our national origin, some of the situations we face are unique. And in order for us to lift that up, we, we need to have more conversations, both in the, the political realm, but also among each other, um, about how they play out. Thus, the book, <laughs> We Too Sing America. Our guest today, Deepa Iyer, uh, author of that uh, brand new book. And, and your book highlights the need for solidarity across progressive movements for social change. For, for example, how can the South Asian Arab Muslim Sikh communities support the Black Lives Matter movement without either co-opting it or losing focus on issues of importance to their own communities? Right. Well, I think that the issue of state violence is obviously an issue that black communities have been contending with for, yes. uh, for a very long time in this country. Yes. And thanks to the Movement for Black Lives, we, we are now seeing it in full urgency, and it's actually opened a lot of people's eyes up. And that is also the case for people in South Asian Arab Muslim communities who are standing in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives without trying to claim it or claim a place right. in it, and are also making the connection, uh, for example, between state violence that happens with police brutality and how our communities have been subjected to, say, surveillance by law enforcement. So there are some links there that are being built. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about this today because um, your, your listeners might be aware that in Alabama recently there has been a case of an Indian grandfather who was walking down a street in his neighborhood and somebody called in a tip to the police saying that there was a suspicious black man walking around. The police arrived and during the course of their encounter with this man whose name is Mr. Patel, um, they realized that he didn't speak any English. He's an immigrant. Oh, wow. He didn't have uh, any facility with English, really. Unfortunately, the encounter led to the point where one of the police officers um, brutalized this man, and in that encounter, Mr. Patel was almost paralyzed um, and took a very long time to recover. So the federal government brought civil rights ch charges against the police officer in this case, but both times um, they actually tried the case twice, it ended up with a hung jury, and there was a mistrial declared. 
And part of the tenor and framing of that case in Alabama has been that Mr. Patel should have known what his rights were and that he should have been acting differently if he's in this country. And so it ended up that he was on trial as opposed to the police officer. So that particular incident has actually mobilized a lot of South Asians to understanding why it's important to really support the movement for black lives and be engaged and understand the connections between state violence and the impact that it has on black communities and also on other communities of color. Yeah, I've often said that uh, there's nothing like adversity to organize a community, and that is that's one, true. one heck of a case. Now, I remember yeah. the, the 50s and 60s when there was a lot of xenophobic talk of Americanism. Of course, what Americanism meant was domination of power and control by white Protestant men. By mid-century, 21st century, America will become a majority minority nation for the first time in our history with the majority of the population comprised of people of color. (laughs) Do you think that racist and xenophobic uh, beliefs and attitudes could become even more prominent as white former majority people feel threatened with losing its traditional hold on power and control? You know, I think that we're at a crossroads, and I'm hoping that it doesn't go that way. But unfortunately, some of the trends are that racial anxiety in this country is on the rise because of this fear of kind of a minority takeover. And um, a couple of points I would make to that end are, are, one, we are seeing, for example, a rise in anti-immigrant policies against people um, to limit their rights, to limit their benefits. And this is one of the ways in which racial anxiety manifests itself. We're also seeing a rise in hate groups, organized hate groups in this country. Um, You know, report after report shows that the greatest threat to all Americans when it comes to organized hate is from white supremacist groups. Um, Yet, we continue to demonize other communities for some reason. And so there are indicators already that this sort of racial anxiety that is related to the demographic changes might lead to more restrictive policies, more restrictive messaging that really targets communities of color, that creates those racial wedges that we talked about earlier. Mm. And so that's why I think we're at a crossroads. I think that all of us, um, whether we're people of color or not, really need to find that common cause of what kind of America are we shaping that we want to shape for our children and future generations and really tackle the systemic and institutional racism and the messaging that we see time and again. Well, when power gets threatened, they tend to get a little bit nasty. And the, the, (laughs) you know, let's face it, and the the power of the white Protestant men, uh, they, they probably feel endangered. And, you know, here is an opportunity, as you say, uh, those now persecuted, Asians, blacks, Latinos, Muslims, Arabs, Sikhs, Persians, I wonder about them, us really coming together with progressives to fight together for equality and respect as good, solid Americans who can justifiably and proudly, as you say, sing America. I I would think that can happen, and I hope uh, there are signs of that as as it's happening. Well, I think there are. I think there are. You know, one of the hopes that I have with this, with this book, um, among so many others that are out there, is that we can actually have more talks, conversations yes. about race. Yes. Some of those conversations are uncomfortable ones, right. but we need to lean into that discomfort and have them with each other. Um, we also need to, as we talked about earlier, increase education and understanding about different communities, different ethnic groups, and our history, um, the post-9-11 history, for example. 
And thirdly, we need to really put in place better policies, more effective policies that go to the root of why this sort of racism occurs. Um, So whether that means dealing with housing segregation or economic injustice or profiling, we need to really put in place those sorts of policies. And coming together is the only way that we can do that. Progressives, allies, people of color, immigrant communities, I do think it's possible. The numbers are there, but whether or not we will have the power remains to be seen. Oh boy, it's always interesting. Learning history. The book is We Too Sing America. Our guest has been author Deepa Iyer. Thank you so much for this very educational and a bit hopeful uh, discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And, and folks are welcome to go to my website, com. And I really hope that some of your listeners will come to the book talks I'm having around the country about these themes and issues. All right. Let's see if we can have some solidarity. Thanks so much. So it feeds us all forever See to it that it's now yours Forward without forgetting Where our strength can be seen now to be When starving or when eating forward, not forgetting our solidarity. Till the concrete question is hurled.